0: Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent. Overcoming challenges and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Picken. Hey, welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Picken. Hey, today I've got Dr. Axel Meyerhofer with me. Um, Axel is a former fighter pilot in both the German and U.S. Air Forces. He's been an instructor pilot, and now he's taken his instructing. Uh, Expertise and he's turned it to corporate development and he now teaches and works with companies of Varying sizes and trains them in leadership development organizational development and how to get to the uh, next level Hey, Axel, how are you doing today?
1: Yeah, wonderful Craig. Thanks for having me.
0: So you're out in San Diego We're jealous. What's uh, what's uh, what's it like out there today?
1: Uh, well, the sky is blue, like expected. I would say about eighty-seven or so degrees. So light wind. You can't complain.
0: There you go. It's a uh, it's a great place to it's a great place to be. So, so, so you know, you spent uh, as you and I were talking offline about twenty some years flying various fighters in the uh, the military services. And yeah, exactly. You've taken that. Uh, you've taken that expertise. How did you go from uh, flying jets to organizational development and leadership coaching?
1: Well, one of the things when when I started to get older, and I think that's that's one of the interesting developments when you are a reflective person, is to look at you know how did I grow up, what did I do, how did my career develop, and, and what are some of the learnings? And one of the things that I always found fascinating. My time in before retirement was in the service in the military, and still flying on like twice a week basis, but really mainly being in the role of a of a program leader. Um, I told you, you know, like we developed this uh, international flight training center at Holloman Air Force Base for collaboration between the U.S. Air Force F-117s and and our Tornado guys that came over to basically get the more advanced training and one of the biggest issues that we always ran into that intrigued me was formation flying in weather conditions and even though we didn't have that weather condition aspect very much in new mexico it is one of the most prevalent things in europe right and so that was one of the triggers that made me think okay so what did i learn from things that are really transferable So uh, you mean you got to
0: you, you do a lot of IFR flying in Europe it's not it's not like San Diego <laughs> weather
1: Yeah exactly you do a lot of IFR flying and and I mean the Tornado as well as the F111s the two main models that I was uh, allowed to fly in uh, in the service both have some feature called um, terrain following radar yeah which is uh, f- is something very scary when you are looking at it from a training perspective um, to have to teach somebody to be willing to totally let the stick go and let the um, throttles go and put in the autopilot and trust that the system is actually finding any obstacles and keeping you at the set height level that you're whizzing along at 480 to 540 uh, knots, right? So that, that is a tricky thing. And if you want to do it by yourself, that's the first step. But then if you do it in a bigger gaggle, then it gets really interesting.
0: Yeah, so you talk about you teach companies, you talk a lot about, you know, you know, diamond diamond aviation, the diamond aviation formation and how you use flying in a in a diamond, you know, diamond pattern to teach corporate executives how to
1: get to the next level. I
0: mean, what what does that what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so I basically take the concept of diamond formation flying and I call it diamond formation leadership and the the if you were to go with the traditional understanding that a diamond formation is a ship of, of four planes, basically. A lot of the things that people don't necessarily have that much familiarity or perspective on in the business environment that I am now basically working in for the last 15 years is that it's really a three-dimensional game. So if you look at, I'm assigning basically roles to each one of those members of the formation. And the roles are collaboration, team building, cultural sensitivity, and globalization. And if you, if you take a look at that, I'm trying to first find out and help uh, individuals, mostly in leadership positions, to ask themselves, okay, if you see and understand the concept of being information, which most people who have a background in aviation would understand, right? So you, you keep your position in all three dimensions, but it also means you have to have these, um, these planes in balance, right? So I asked them when I transfer that to the business world, okay, how well is your ability to collaborate both internally and externally in balance with your ability to build high performance or super performing teams with your ability to have a diverse workforce and cater to all those needs. And I don't mean only diverse in sense of cultural heritage, but even across age, gender, and other, other attributes. And then even though some of the aspects of, of what we hear in the media and in politics right now may not seem like it's quite as relevant, but when I, because of my projects in the international business world, I personally strongly believe that globalization is the fourth component of that balance. It's and be, how, you know, how yeah, well true. are you in, in that space? You
0: know? So, you know, companies, you, you know, we were talking the other day, um, you know, about A plus players and, you know, every company wants to get a bunch of A players on board. <laughs> and, and I think about, you know, sports teams. I remember back when I was a kid, the Yankees, they went out and they got the best of the best at every position. And it was a bunch of big egos. Do you, do you find that you know, when companies go out and they, they strive to get the best and the brightest in every position that collaboration actually becomes more difficult?
1: Yeah, I would agree that it becomes more difficult. And I go even a step further and ask oftentimes, what is your process to identify candidates? And what I'm finding quite interesting is that there's still a very traditional approach for vetting, right? So people put this kind of can walk over water unicorn type person in the job description that they're supposedly trying to find. And then they have some people reacting to that. If they're smart enough, they're catering exactly to what's being written there, knowing that they're not that person and nobody would be, right? And so then when they actually bring them in, depending on what the role is and what the position is. They're finding out that the goals that the people have and, and how they actually look at it is one thing and how that might fit. But what I personally have found to be a much more important component, which is oftentimes completely neglected, is style. right? And so if, if I always use the example in, I don't know, I mean, it's kind of still perplexing to me that the vast majority of my major clients are in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry these days. I haven't really figured out where the connection to aviation originally comes from, but that's just a fact. And what I'm finding is there are a lot of very scientific people who started their career in some laboratory or something like that, or in some clinical trial uh, organization, and they ascend through the career. But what happens is they put these elaborate job descriptions out, and then they hire people that have the same left brain scientific style that they have. And like you said, oftentimes alpha males or alpha position type style right and then they wonder why they're constantly clashing and never really get that one component that I call team building as one of the three dimensional components in the diamond really to work
0: yeah well inclusion and div- inclusion and diversity you know is a, is a huge yeah you know, the big buzzwords right now inclusion and diversity right, and a good friend of mine runs you know she's a uh, you know, she's an executive at Raytheon does organizational development and she's you know focused on diversity and you know, the one thing about diversity is this if you get diverse people and you get diverse thoughts and diverse thoughts bring diverse ideas, you know, and diverse ideas bring, you know, new challenges and you know, make companies better. If every, if everybody's thinking very linear, you know, you, your, your core, your company's very linear.
1: Yeah. I, I would totally subscribe to that. I totally agree to that. One aspect on, on that point that I would love to add is diversity if it is also including to say where people either came from or where their families came from. so if you take first generation second generation as a as a frame then it's interesting how diverse fears can be like in the current environment for example I have a ton of people working in organizations that I'm supporting and consulting in where either the employee or the relatives of the employees have grown, Massive fears, even though they might be green card holders or permanent residents and stuff like that, what might happen to them if the current situation gets worse? And, and that that impacts their ability to really be fully focused on the work that, that we are asking them to do.
0: Yeah. So how do you, how are you uh, how are you helping them get how are you helping companies you know think less linear and more diverse?
1: Well, one of the things is to pay attention to what are the positive attributes and the benefits that people from different backgrounds and different upbringings and, and different approaches of seeing the world actually bring to the organization. So, you know, that I I try to impress upon them to try to establish a mindset or adopt a mindset that is open to ideas and open to innovation and and don't just immediately when somebody says something that you've never heard about come with a reaction oh that's crazy that will never work right and so allowing Openness uh, and, and free for all for ideas. One thing uh, to give you a more practical example that I, in one of my projects I'm involved in, where I see this actually work really well is that a lot of um, enterprise level organizations are in the process or have recently or are planning to roll out Microsoft Office 365. And it used to be that that was just an update or upgrade to like Word or PowerPoint and, and stuff like that. But now, The suite also includes collaboration tools and team-building tools. One of them is called Yammer. And so what I found is it's basically a protective, secure space that acts a lot like Facebook. But what it also allows is to this aspect of diversity, especially for Generation X and and, and younger um, people, um, to actually have a forum that they're very familiar with that is completely connected to your mobile devices and that allows you... To float ideas and ask questions without being in a formal setting. So that's actually one of the things that I encourage organizations who have basically seen their upgrade to the tools that they use to interact with their people to just be in this relatively stringent corset of like email and and meetings and and Skype and stuff like that, um, and and be open and and adopt these other tools as well.
0: Yeah um do you you know you you go back to the hiring process and you know do you think the big uh do you think the big issue companies have with the hiring process is they ask the hiring manager what are you looking for
1: that's one aspect and and
0: they say we want we want a guy who looks just like joe the hiring manager and 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 that's all they focus on
1: well that's part of it and the other part of it is the immediacy right i mean there's two components to that Uh, one is most of the time, it takes so long or it's so hard to get the funding approved for a position if it's not just a replacement, that by the time you actually put all the ducks in a row, you end up in a position where basically whoever the recruiting company or the HR department or whoever is uh, supposedly providing the candidates is being told, and we need to get this done in three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. Right? So it's not really, if you think from the concept of A players or the best possible candidate, if you're constricting the amount of time that you are allowing somebody to actually find the best suitable player, you end up with Bs and Cs. Yeah, by no, design, you know I
0: couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, uh, I'm obviously an executive recruiter, and you know, people expect me. And it's like, okay, I open up the candidate drawer, and you know, by Friday, I've I've got, you know, three or four or five, you know, great candidates who are willing to move to Des Moines, Iowa for a you know, senior leadership position with a highly technical company. And, and you know, people look, if that's the expectation you're putting on me, what's the expectation you're putting on your organization?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, I totally agree. But the other component of that is that from my perspective, even though I would be far removed from claiming to be any kind of wizard in accounting or stuff like that, but simple math is one of the things that we got taught pretty well in Germany. Yeah. So I oftentimes say, okay, so you have to explain to me you're filling a hundred fifty, hundred seventy thousand dollar position. You know the person is only really gonna be productive in a sense that you have return on on your investment six to nine months in, sometimes up to twelve, depending on what the job is. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, OK, give somebody like Crack a chance to really find somebody who might reduce that to six months and really help you, not just with what he or she already knows, but things that you don't even know you need that they bring to the table. No, you're basically bringing the B player in who ends up to be the dud, not, not to be bad on people or harsh on people. But by that time, you have already spent, what, 100 grand or so? And then you have to start over. Oh yeah, I mean, a, hire, so, I mean a,
0: a bad hiring decision. A bad hiring decision is is like you know, it costs you five x or something. It's a huge, it's a huge number. And 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 you know, I I see the same thing. I'll just sometimes companies just don't put a lot of thought into what they're really looking for. They're they're very reactive.
1: Yeah, there's also one thing, and I have to say this is a this is something that is maybe a little bit of a pet peeve on on my part. And every place I go to where like growing a team, building a team, putting a a particular group of people together that includes people from the outside, I always try to really impress upon them to look at the people that actually show interest, whether they come through an organization like US Craig or whether they come through applications on the website or something like that. But be at least courteous enough to put, if for nothing else, then protect your own reputation to be courteous enough to tell them not only, uh, sorry, we found a better suitable candidate. People put a ton of effort oftentimes these days. I mean, I love these new applications where you just click your button and your LinkedIn profile gets uploaded and you're done. But the vast majority, especially larger organizations, are still uh, making you fill out a long form and and all kinds of boxes and your resume and all kinds of cover letter, what have you. And then all you get when you're sitting there and saying, okay, I'm really excited to work for a company, ABC. All you get is a simple one-liner email, if you even get that, that says, we found a more suitable candidate. Thank you for your efforts. Right. It's not good yeah. enough. In my view, that is one of the aspects where a lot of people that are in this middle space where you say, I'm not really an executive who is probably going to be recruited through a recruiting company that makes money doing that. So I, I'm kind of having to do it on my own using, I don't know, the Indeed or the Zip recruiters of the world, but I'm at a point where... You know that, as you know yourself, there are like director-level positions or like the letters or anything like that, right? And so that interaction, I think a lot of companies turn off people who might either be a good candidate for something slightly different than what they originally put out there, or they turn them off because the reaction is, okay, would I really want, if I have some transformational leadership skills that I'm promoting and trying to teach people, would I want to work for a company that treats people that way?
0: Well, but that's the whole thing. Everybody gets going 1,000 miles an hour, and the follow-up's horrible. And, and um, it's all, uh, you know, it's, it's, you hear that a lot in the industry. You know, let's flip the switch, though. I mean, you, you talk to companies, and a lot of them are doing stuff really well. I mean, you're, you're involved in pharma development and, and some other uh, tech industries. What are they doing great out there right now?
1: What I find those that are actually doing really well, and I, I would first admit that there is a little bit of a bias on my side, but I see organizations who have successfully, and especially at the leadership level, made a transition to a transformational leadership style that is based on relationships. Those if I compare, and and like I said, I'm a little biased on it, but if I compare the atmosphere, the engagement, the, how much the people like to come to work? How much they're willing to be asked to do 110% for months because we need it in a transactional versus a transformational organization? It's day and night. It's just not even funny.
0: Yeah. What makes a great leader? What's the, what are the what are the great transformational leaders doing that the lower quality leaders you know, are not?
1: Um, well, a couple of things. One thing that they do is they have the ability to clearly communicate in, in. well, let's put it this way. They, they clearly communicate the vision, big and small vision. And when I say clearly communicate, I mean this also not just by what they say, but every opportunity that they can find to say it in a style-sensitive way. They say it to those people who are very direct in a direct way who they say it and describe it and uh, talk about it in a very data-driven way to the very systematic analytical people. They right. tell an awesome fireside chat story about the vision to the more spirited and, and, and artistic and creative people. And they, they have some way to engage people who are more collaborative or team-oriented, and they do that pretty much all day long, every opportunity, and when they have to do something official like from the stage, they find a way to communicate to all these four style quadrants simultaneously, right? So that's one thing that everybody feels like he or she is being talked to directly yep. in way and in the style that, that resonates with them.
0: Are companies yeah. teaching that? Are companies teaching how to be a good leader or are they just talking and teaching how to be good managers?
1: Well, I'm teaching every time I have the opportunity, both through formal programs. Like I'm doing a program called the transformational leadership and coaching program, where people enroll for six months and get certified both to become a transformational leader, but also to get an ICF certification for coaching as a leadership skill. Yep. Um, but it's also in like being exposed, right? Like when, you, when I'm being asked to be a consultant in a leading role for a project, then for one, I'm trying to to walk the the talk. You know, I'm encouraging anybody in the leadership team to do the same, and I'm trying to bring them, you know, not in formal training, but into more like the day-to-day operations to see the alternative to sometimes what they do. And that also means, I am sure, you have that tooth crack where you know people offer something to you or describe something to you. And you know that if you get on board with them, that is completely counter to your style and to your way of doing. You just have to turn them away.
0: Who's the best leader you've run into? I mean, you talk about who's doing it right. What's, you know, n- name somebody. Is there anybody well, out there that you've seen as just phenomenal leader who, you know, if you, if you got in their organization, you'd follow them, you know, over hot coals?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one is uh, the guy who led the company um, that I'm doing some work here in San Diego. His name is Jim Shibeta. He went back to the East Coast and is the CEO of an a up-and-coming pharmaceutical company. And the other guy is somebody who started out where I was a consultant at Bayer. And he is uh, also now back to the East Coast. His name is Jay Benson. Yeah, And they both really, they impersonated A lot of the things I mentioned and then some some additional ones.
0: Good coaches, good, you know, they can talk, they can coach, they can.
1: Right, right, exactly. Well, the other part, they can talk, they can coach. What they can also do is they give you the feeling that you are simultaneously respected, that you are being protected, kind of like this under the wings aspect, but that there is just this unspoken expectation that you do your best every day. And you're not being constantly controlled and micromanaged to check if you do, but you basically create an atmosphere where you know that's the expectation. And what it actually triggers, which is very interesting, is that people naturally in, in doing business on a daily basis, you can't avoid to make mistakes. One indication for somebody to really be mastering this transformational leadership skill is when your people come to you and self-confess that they did something wrong.
0: Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. They come in, I screwed up. You're yeah, sure? I, I I did, did I this. I thought,
1: yeah, exactly. They come in like, you know, and it's not only the person, you know, as an individual who may have done something wrong, it's even at that level. Typically I have this team that's responsible for getting this particular new approach for this particular software solution out there or for this particular clinical trial. We thought this was the best way to go about it. I let them go down this path. They spend, I don't know five million dollars and three months worth of work, and we had have to admit it was wrong. We now know what we should have done, but the money is down the drain, and I'm ready to be punished.
0: And the and the and the good leader and the good leader does what? Does he make the change? Does he shrug his shoulders and say, "Okay, what's the new plan?" Does well, he,
1: yeah, exactly. In in my experience and my recommendation is always, let's make sure. That the lessons learned, and I call that second generation knowledge management, is the lessons that you guys have learned need to be learned by everybody. So not just acknowledge that something is wrong and identify what was the thing or the aspect or the process that was wrong, but how do we communicate that knowledge, that finding, that learning to everybody so other people don't make the same mistake.
0: Yeah, there's one thing, it's really, it's, really, it's, uh, it's, it's a great thing, and um, I'm going to go back to the military a little bit. In the Navy, in naval aviation, they've got this magazine called Approach Magazine, and what it really is, it's, it's like a quarterly magazine or monthly or something like that, but it goes out to all the squadrons, and it's, it's where literally aircrew guys, you know, pilots, aircrew, whomever, they sort of confess their sins in writing, and they're like, you know, hey, I was, you know, I was doing this, I saw that, I should have done something else. Um, I didn't do it, the airplane crashed and I ejected, you know, lesson learned for everybody or here's what I did right. And and that's a nice when you can have that kind of dynamic in an organization where everybody could talk about the lessons that they learned individually and spread it out. I think more, more companies need to get to that place.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And if you go back to what we talked about earlier on Diamond Formation Leadership, whether it's a four-ship or multiples of four-ships. I know that you know that you do a mission debrief or a flight debrief every time. That's just one of the things that you do in in aviation, right? when When you take it to a larger gaggle and you remember back on how that was when you did like an exercise to to run a larger fleet to to some kind of target complex or something like that. It's not a matter of, let's talk about all the things that went well, even though those are being acknowledged, but it has always been, what did we do wrong? How can we do better? What can we learn from it? How do we implement it for the next one? Yeah. Right. And that is one of those things that I I know you and I for decades have practiced it, and I'm taking that as one of the learnings into organizations and encourage them. And interestingly enough, a transformational person, because... From conceptually, you want to be 80% asking questions and 20% giving direction, right? So that comes automatically. You let everybody basically put out the stuff that they have done. But it's a good sign that they, to your question about what's the atmosphere, what's the culture, how does it feel to be in an environment like that, is where you know, okay, I can go. And without having to be afraid of losing my job, we can discuss what happened. I can show what I've done to identify the causes I know what I need to prepare to make everybody else in the organization aware. And this is also where tool sets like Intranet and Yammer and Teams and stuff like that, as, as software applications come into play, because they give you easy ways to, to make that happen. Yeah. Like it, you know, With Teams, you can have 2,500 people on your Teams. If you use SharePoint, you have basically enterprise-wide communication. And with Yama, you can put a link out to say, hey, we screwed something up. We found a better way to do it. Everybody should know. And here's the link to where the details are.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I remember, you know, it's funny, you know, same company, two lessons in leadership. And, and, and the first one was the CEO got mad because he was given some, you know, bad information. Yeah. And he started looking through the information. He's going, wait a minute. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And, and, you know, he was, he was, he was heated about it, but he sits there and he looks at me and he goes, Hey, look, this is, you're the last line of defense. You know, if I'm going up in front of a shareholder or whomever, you know, I need stuff that's right and I don't have time to look through it. And, you know, you're looking at the guy and you're knowing great lesson learned. You know, I promise you that'll be the last time I ever give you something bad or or, or something you know inaccurate again. And then you right. another, another leader sits there and goes, why'd you screw it up? And he's like, well, let's ask a different question. What happened? Because, you know, when something gets screwed up, yeah, you know, there's there's always reasons for it. And it's, you know, you, you always see the level of leader by saying, hey, look, here's why I need stuff right. Or here's why we have to do this. Um, you know, you can't always expect people to really understand what's in your head.
1: No, I totally agree with that. Uh, I I have an example that might illustrate pretty well the the difference between transactional and transformational. and, And actually, when it happens within an organization at the top level, it also hits people quite hard. So I mentioned Jim as one of the transformational leaders who I admire, who really has it down and did a great job. And he got an opportunity to be fr- going from a president in a company to a CEO of another company. He always wanted that. So he took it totally understandable. The organization, for whatever reasons, brings in a transactional leader. And that transactional leader, basically, in the f- in one of the very early meetings where people were basically presenting their upcoming projects for the next fiscal year, including the funding that is required for that, uh, at the end, after listening to everything, basically said, so, how much did you pad every one of those budgets? Wow. Right. Wow. And so, you, 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 I was literally just like you paused for a moment. I paused and I think I must have counted to 20 or so to just really calm down, right? Because it changed the whole atmosphere of everybody being used to working for a transformational leader where they had trust, where they had good relationships, where they weren't doubted in their abilities to somebody who basically, without saying it quite that directly, accusing them of fudging the numbers
0: yeah it's like all right how much did you pad these because he's looking quarterly or he's looking quarterly and and he and he's trying to figure out hey look what do i gotta tell the uh what do i gotta tell the uh shareholders at the end of the quarterly meeting before i report
1: right but it goes to attitude as well yeah exactly If, if your attitude is not just because you're new but because your way of leading and your way of style is command and control yeah Right then you want to make sure that there's always a certain level of pressure on. And the opposite is basically true in transformational. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, the, the transformational leader trying to get to a... He, he's looking at the goal. He's trying to get to a place. The transactional leader is trying to hit a number or he's just trying to... you know. very short-term view. Right. Um, you know, we've all seen it. And, and, and yeah, I can imagine that meeting if you had... You could see the thoughts going above people's heads like, what idiot is? What kind of idiot is this? He's been here three days and he already thinks we're lying to him.
1: Yeah, and actually went further because people who were self-secure within themselves enough and knowing the industry right now and how the market looks like within about six months, a huge, like an unusually huge number of really good people left.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what uh, what something like that will do to an organization. Which
1: I mean, it might have been a boom for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you never, you never know, right?
1: Yeah, no, I'm just saying, you know, like if something like that happens, but it's totally underestimated. Like a style change at the top, especially when it's a pretty dramatic one like that, can really make a huge impact on the organization uh, because people have to focus energy in different places, and that is under un, when we're going back to our threat of aviation, right? I think it's one of the beauties when you don't just go from the mechanics that the checklist teach you or that the flight school teach you. And you say, where's the artistic component here? Is that you can do something with a very limited or minimal amount of energy. And if I go back to my model of, of diamond formation flying, if you have trimmed out properly and you have your power settings and all your things in the right place, you're not fiddling around a whole lot. Right, Right. you're using your energy, your focus, not just as a person, but also for for your plane in this case, or if you transfer to the organization, to your organization, with minimal inputs and keep perfect position. Yeah, you know,
0: it's it's interesting. You know, A players hate B companies. (laughs) A players will not go to work for B companies. Right, and and you know, you know, years ago, I would get B companies and and. You're like, oh, I would be on the phone. I'm like, oh, don't ask me for anything because I really don't want to give it to you. And they're like, hey, we need a new VP of sales. And and you know, at the end of the conversation in your head, you're going, all right, what B player can I get for this B company? And it's tiresome because at the end of the day, you don't want you, you don't want B players. You don't want to talk to B players. You want to find who the A players are. And 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 so you know, through age and experience here, you know, it's like, no, I'm not. Uh, why don't you go call Joe down the road? He'll do it for you. It's not for me.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and it, it fits very well. There's some, one of the other things that I always ask when this kind of starts creeping in is how strong is your need for instant gratification? Yeah. And when the answer is pretty strong or anything that equates to that, you can already predict that that's not going to be the most excellent solution, whatever the issue may be.
0: Yep. I hear you. So, hey, so we got, you know, everybody's talking about, and I always ask this, the new generations don't think, you know, shocking, the new generation, the next, the up and coming generations don't think like the older generations anymore. Right. Tech has changed, you know, tech has changed everything. You know, the world is changing rapidly. What What do companies need to do to integrate you know, the, the millennials and now realistically the kids of millennials who are coming into the workforce effectively?
1: Well, for me, I personally believe the, the strongest in the clear communication, any form of other articulation of purpose. If you can make a strong case for what's the purpose of what the organization wants to do, make a strong case of what's the purpose of the department or division that somebody is a member of? What's the purpose of that team? And what's the purpose of your job in that? And make that all work together. Then I think this instant urge of, okay, I finished my college and now I need to become a manager first, is going away if there's a strong purpose motive.
0: Do the kids today really think that? I mean, the the big frustration I hear with Hiring managers is they, they get a 23, 22, 23-year-old, 23 you know, young executive out of college, and that person wants to start at the top versus paying their dues. Um, I think that's a little overstated, but what, do you, what are you seeing?
1: Well, the thing is, I, I really don't believe that the language that is being used is is appropriate. What they, what they want faster than other organizations, uh, other individuals, and, and generations wanted is fulfillment and gratification. They have not, and that I go all the way back to parenting and, and, and how they've been raised. They have gotten fulfillment and gratification in every other aspect very, very quickly. Uh-huh. Like, you know, when, when, when you and I went to school, you either won or you lost. Or if you're lucky and they were a little bit more lenient, you were one in the top three and you may have gotten a medal and everybody else didn't get anything. Right. Nowadays you go to school, you participate in something, and it doesn't matter how you did, you get get some sort of a reward. Right. Right. And that sets a certain culture of, of fulfillment and, and gratification that is then also expected in the workplace. And my answer to that is well, you it's not a matter of giving people raises or bonuses or trinkets or stuff like that. It's trying to convert it into do something meaningful. If you can go to work every day and do something that you believe in that's meaningful, that has a purpose, that connects with, with what your ideas are, then the money is basically out of the picture or any of the other things. People don't care if it's a cubicle or if they can do it on their iPhone from home. right? The thing what I'm pointing out what my experience is, is when we try to take a traditional aspect of where you have to be when you have to be there what's the title you have to have how many years do you have to do it before you're eligible for the next promotion this kind of relatively traditional model and want to put it in front of people who have come up through this constant gratification and fulfillment process and so i'm i'm proposing to say okay what can we do to you know not make not try to take the attributes of the past and try somehow to apply them to this new generation,
0: yeah, you know and and no matter you know no matter who the executive, how old they are, you know you, the conversation I have with people is success cures a lot of problems, and you take a job, be successful, do it well, get respect amongst your peers, and the world
1: is your oyster and yeah well my, yeah, get
0: respect I, and 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 a lot of doors are going to close.
1: Right, exactly. Well, And the thing is, I mean, I have had the opportunity to either through TED Talks or through other means, um, having worked in the Bay Area for a while, to have access to people uh, of some of those companies that were like little, little startups. And in three, four, five, ten 10 years, they became multi-billion dollar companies. And when you ask the founders, um, so now, you know, like whether it's a Zuckerberg or other people from LinkedIn and Twitter and, and what have you, say, so, okay, you're a multi-billionaire now. You're still going to work every day. Why do you do this? The answer that I hear and that I believe is is a pretty good um, you know empirical um, tool to say there must be something right about it is that the first answer that I hear almost consistently, sometimes in different words is, "I never started this because I wanted to become a billionaire." right. Right. I started this because, for example, for Facebook, I wanted to connect people with each other because I was one of the people who was sitting in my dorm and was lonely and, and didn't have anybody to talk to. So I tried to find a way to do it digitally or electronically. Yep. Right? Well, I wanted to build something where the business community, the professionals could interact and didn't need to tell each other what they had for dinner, yep. right? stuff like that. So it all for me, this is some way, shape or form saying, I had a purpose why I did this.
0: Yep. And and it's like a pro it's like a pro athlete or a military pilot or whatever.
1: Right.
0: They do it yeah. for the love. The love of the game or the love of flying or you know.
1: Yeah, no, or believing the in the purpose really of really defending good. the country or defending democracy or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I, mean, I mean I I grew up and we had the big red bear sitting literally like in shooting distance. Yep. Yeah.
0: Right. And 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 I think that's you know, it's it's interesting. You know, I, I don't know any really good executives. If, if the conversation starts with money, it's, it's, it, that's a red flag. Um, you know, it's more if, if it starts with, hey, tell me about the job. Tell me what I can do. Tell me about the cool things that, you know, that are there that need to be tackled. That's the beginning of a great dialogue. If somebody comes and says it's about the money, uh, I'm a little skeptical. So. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and that's true for money. I believe that's true when people ask for title, right? Like, I've always wanted to become a VP. Well, right. Is that really the thing, right? Or I, I've always wanted to work for a company that has 20, 30, 50,000 people. Is that really the thing? Like, if, if you put these kind of quantitative aspects on it, rather than like a qualitative component, like I say purpose, um, then then you might want to ask yourself, is that really the lasting motivation? I oftentimes go back. I mean, you know, you have to have kind of like your most foundational things. I love, for example, what, what uh, Jim Collins said in Good to Great, what's a level five leader? Right? And, and and what happens if a company doesn't do well? They bring in the transactional guy who lasts for two years because then you can't cut costs any further, yep. right? which is totally quantitative. and. And so like those are my two go-tos, you know. I don't know if you have that in your podcast about the favorite book thing or that some people do, but I always say for me it's Jim Collins good to grade and John Cotter's leading change, right? Because yeah. I'm a change agent and and or if you want to be cute, you can see our iceberg is melting, right? Yeah,
0: so. no, I mean, yeah, hey, look, I, I don't care if you're a level one contributor, you know, just a level yeah, you know, just a level one individual contributor. Be a good one. Yeah. Not everybody was meant to be a, a level. You know, everybody. Yeah, you know, everybody that reads the problem with Jim Collins' book hmm. is that everybody who reads it thinks they're a level five leader, um, at least initially. But you know, the fact of the matter is, is hey, look, if you're just an individual contributor, that's good. Just be a good one. You know, be a great individual contributor. There's nothing. You know, no shame with that. But yeah. so,
1: well, that would be a totally new story if you and I were starting about being honest to yourself, right? Because yeah. one one of the things is, you know, what do you do when stuff doesn't go so well? Right. And not very many people who think they're level five would actually admit that they assume the responsibility, you know, and everything that goes well goes to everybody else, not them.
0: Right. right.
1: And yeah, and that, in a nutshell, if, if you can honestly say that's me, you might be close.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think it all starts, you know, it all starts with looking in the mirror and going, hey, look, it's a. Uh Know it all starts here. So, hey, we've been doing this about forty minutes now. Um, kind of final final thoughts. What uh, you know, your company's doing it well. They doing it average. They got a lot of room to improve. What are you, you know, you optimistic?
1: Well, what what I would say is that the bigger the organization, that's really purely from my experience. In many cases, the bigger the organization, the more they still have to learn and change, right? right. Um, And the harder they 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 do in actually accomplishing it. On the other hand, um, I sometimes find what there is a generational issue and, and not every organization is in that place, but especially in the industry, I'm mostly helping in the pharmaceutical, biotech, life science industry. There's many, many, many organizations who only exist because some investors put a ton of money in it. And For the vast majority of of cases, these investors are basically my generation, baby boomers. Right. And so their whole frame of reference, their whole life experience, all the attributes, all the things that they apply are relatively traditional. And so that's where the struggle comes from. And those who don't have those ankle chains or those who have some way to overcome it or find another way to not be basically bogged down by that. Those are the ones that are successful. And, and I personally, that's why I have globalization as one of the corners for the diamond uh, formation. I believe you have to have this kind of looking over the horizon kind of attitude, even if that doesn't mean another country. But that needs to be a strong component. Those who do, I think I'm optimistic that they will succeed no matter what the politics or other developments may be. Those that are kind of clamping down, I think, will be washed away by by a wave in the not too distant future.
0: Yeah, I tend to think about I think about it. Hey, I wanna actually you gotta you got promise to come back on. We uh we yeah, we, we covered a lot in forty minutes and quite frankly, uh there we there's a lot more good stuff to talk about. Will you will you come back?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I always love to people talk to people who are in the same space that I am in, you know, and, and if if I get opportunities to speak about leadership and, and how to apply it and how to get better at it, I'm happy to come anytime you want me to.
0: How do people uh, how do people get a hold of you outside my podcast?
1: Well, one of the things is they can just go to my website, which is literally com or go on social media. You type in any kind of remote form of my name. It's relatively unique and it pops up in LinkedIn, Facebook, everywhere.
0: Cool. Um, Hey, thank you for being here. Let's, uh, Let's get you back soon.